Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. Uh, a couple things. Hope you had a great time with your family and friends over um, Thanksgiving. We did. And we're thankful for that opportunity. A um, couple things uh, else. Uh, tonight, there's no Kids for Truth. Uh, there are a number of folks in the ministry are sick, so there's no Kids for Truth. But an email went out <coughs> on that uh, issue sometime yesterday, I believe. And the second thing I was asked to remind you, if you didn't get that email, would you fill out one of those connection cards in the um, uh, bulletin to make sure you're on the email list? Because we do a lot of things by email. So check that. If you haven't, uh, I'm not on the list. Give that information if you would. Put it in the offering box. Um, new member applications. Remind you one more time if you'd like to be a part of that. And then Emmanuel's Child Project. Tremendously encouraging as a congregation, we did 307 stars, which is 307 opportunities to uh, interact into different families there in the lands of the former Soviet Union. Uh, we are going to bump it up as the church. We're going to bump it up to 350. And, and so that's just a tremendous opportunity. So thank you very much for being a part of that. I, I guarantee you it's not, uh, it's not a waste. It's a tremendous valuable uh, uh, ministry that we have an opportunity to partner with. All right, take your Bible and open to John chapter 20, <clears throat> verse 31. <clears throat> John 20, verse 31. The text says, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray our Father and God, we're so thankful for the opportunity to uh, uh, gather in uh, around your word this morning, and we're so thankful for that word. Uh, we're thankful for Christ, thankful for your love uh, that you have uh, bestowed upon us, and pray, Lord, that you'd help us to think uh, clearly this morning upon the truth of what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the, uh, the Son of God, and through our study in the word, open our minds to receive and to learn and then to uh, uh, work on our heart to uh, again fall deeper and deeper in love with you our God and Christ our Savior and I pray these things in Christ's name amen <clears throat> now as we come to our study here uh, the, this morning in the book of John we're in this last verse uh, in this uh, uh, chapter and everything that uh, John has written uh, in, in this gospel account uh, all the evidence that he has presented is that men by faith might believe uh, the evidence concerning uh, the person of Jesus so that men would have eternal life. Th that's what God desires. First Timothy uh, 2 verse 4, God desires that all men would be saved and, and come to the knowledge of the truth. That, that's the heart uh, of God. Uh, the compassionate heart of God is that men in their rebellion would, would put down their arms, so to speak, that they would turn from their sin and live and not face God in wrath, but by, repent, by, by way of repentance and faith, have their sins forgiven and come into a reconciled relationship uh, with him through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, last Lord's Day, we spent the entirety of our time uh, here in the morning looking at the nature of saving faith. 
Again, these things have been written that you may believe. And we ask from uh, various portions of the Bible, we ask from the Bible, what does it mean? What does genuine faith look like? What does true saving faith look like? Acknowledging the fact that there's true saving faith, but also there's a false faith, a faith that does not save. There are, in fact, unbelieving believers. And we looked at a variety of different passages that spoke to that issue because there are some people who claim to have an association with Christ, some kind of association with Christ, some kind of, uh, some people claim that they are believers in God, but the truth is they're actually haters of God. Haters of God, rejectors of God's word, rejectors of his son, haters of his son. In fact, uh, they're not who they claim to be whatsoever. They're actually sons of the devil. But God in his kindness through the text of the scripture, again, wants to make sure that you do not fall into that category. Wants to make sure that you don't deceive yourself, that you're saved when you're not. He wants to make sure that you are not falsely thinking you're on the way to heaven when you're not. He wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth. These things have been written that you might believe. Now, we looked at this issue of unbelieving belief, as it were, that plays itself out in a variety of different passages in the Gospel of John. And then we looked over to Matthew 7. And I just want to read that again. Where Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, it says, Many, many, not a few, but many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and I will declare to them that I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a terrifying passage of Scripture for the self to see, but it's a wonderful act of God and his kindness to make sure that you're not. What, what does the genuine look like? And we went over to Matthew chapter 13. We looked at the parable of sower. We saw that, there, the, that uh, when the word of God is uh, declared, uh, there are four kinds of soil or four kinds of, res of responses to the gospel, four kinds of hearers. Uh, there was first the hard heart, or the unresponsive heart, that's the word goes forth and the devil comes and he snatches it up uh, before it has a chance to root or, or take hold in the heart. Uh, secondly, there was the rocky soil or the shallow soil. That's the man who immediately hears the gospel. He immediately hear, receives it with joy. He may have even, quote unquote, accepted Jesus. Yet uh, his association with Jesus is only temporary because when affliction or persecution because of the word arises, then he immediately falls away. There was the third kind of soil, the weedy soil, the thorny soil, really the strangled heart. And this is where the man hears the word of God and he's so excited about it. But then the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and he becomes unfruitful. So all of these first three hearers, uh, or these three first categories, they've all heard of the gospel. Uh, but in one way or the other, they've really rejected it. That they all fallen away from the truth not embrace the truth. They're still under condemnation because the reality is they're not converted. So again, warning passages in the Bible are an act of God's kindness to make sure you're not in the category of unbelieving believers. There was a fourth soil. That was the good soil, the open heart. Matthew 13, verse 23. And the one in whom the seed was sown, the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. So it's the Lord Jesus who says, look, the evidence, the genuine evidence of, of true saving faith, the evidence of genuine belief is that bears fruit. 
there's evidence. There's the mark of genuine saving faith in a person's life is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is the, uh, on a spiritual level is evidence of the fact that God has changed you, that God is in you, that God is at work in your life. Merely accepting Jesus, quote-unquote, is not enough to claim genuine saving faith. Just believing in Jesus or believing in God is not enough to claim genuine saving faith because as I reminded you in James 2.19, the Bible says that even the devils believe. Even the devils believe. Mental assent, intellectual assent to truth is not genuine saving faith. So what does it mean to genuinely, savingly believe upon Jesus Christ? Well, in my review this week, I went back and I found something from James Boyce that I thought was very helpful and very simple as an explanation. He called it the ABCs of belief. How can you tell if if you really genuinely believe upon Christ? Here are the ABCs of belief. The A, right? He says we must accept the basic teaching about the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth as fact. The A, we must accept the basic teachings about the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth as fact because they are indeed fact. Now the reason that many people don't believe them, the reason that many people doubt them um, is not because the facts are uncertain. The facts concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ are well attested as well as any other facts of history. But the issue is they've not been thoroughly investigated by those who say they do not believe. And again, many questions could be answered if people had a genuine desire to know, if they would just take up and read the Word of God. But the unbelieving man, the fallen man, won't do that. Because he thinks if he takes up the Word of God, then that's going to make him accountable to God. But the fallacy of that kind of thinking is he's already accountable to God. So just pretending the Word of God doesn't exist and I'm just going to not read it and ever expose myself to the truth, then I won't know. That's just falling. Because the Bible says every man's going to stand and give an account before God. So again, the A is you must accept the basic teaching about the person, the work, the life of the person of Jesus as Nazareth as fact. There has to be a positive recognition of the truth. Secondly, the B, you must believe. And you must believe in Him personally. Now again, it's more than just believing intellectually facts concerning the life of the person, but that belief about the person of Jesus Christ is belief in relationship to yourself. Belief in relationship to yourself. Believing that He came into this world and He died for you. Believing that He is the only way for you to be reconciled unto God. Believing that He is the only way for you to have your sin forgiven. He and He alone, the person of Jesus Christ. Believing that He is your Savior and you have no other help and no other hope apart from the person of Jesus Christ. You must believe. There must be a deep personal affirmation of the truth. So you accept the biblical teaching of the person of the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth as fact and you believe Him personally for yourself. He is your Savior. And then C, the ABC, the C is you commit yourself to Him. You commit yourself to Him. He's now your Lord. You walk in Him, uh, walk with Him in obedience. Uh, your life is now lived in a manner that you desire to please Him always. So there has to be a personal trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, and there has to be a surrender to Him. So that's the ABCs of genuine saving faith, genuine true saving faith. I thought that was helpful. So again, a person who's a genuine believer, someone who's genuinely been born again, born from above, 
Somebody who's been transformed, changed by God's grace, evidences that in their life by how they live their life. Again, spiritual fruit. That kind of person who has genuine saving faith is no longer who they once were, but now there's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in one's life. And I gave you a list, such as a love for God in Christ, a repentance from sin, a genuine humility and brokenness over one's sin. There's a devotion to God and His glory in one's life. There's a continuation of prayer. A genuine believer is separated from the world. They don't love the world or the things of the world. There's a uh, those who are alive from the dead spiritually, they experience spiritual growth uh, on some level. And, and they're obedient. There's a desire to be obedient. Not perfection, but there's a desire to walk in obedience, to honor God, to honor Christ in the entirety of their life. That's somebody who's genuinely saved. The unbelieving world doesn't care about any of those kind of things. But someone who's genuinely saved is motivated by those kind of things because that person is a new creation in Christ. All things past and all things new have come. So again, the issue of genuine saving faith, what it really looks like, is of vast eternal importance in your life. You have to make certain that your belief is biblical. As the scripture commands us to, to evaluate ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, more importantly, to see if Christ is in us. That comes out of 2 Corinthians 13.5. And the last thing I said, that the person who has genuine saving faith is different, not only because he looks like Christ, but do you remember the last one? The thing about someone who has genuine saving faith is Christ has now become precious to them, right? Christ has become precious to them. And that's just a great point. We, we just want to honor Christ with our life because he means so much to me, right? Preciousness of the person of Jesus Christ. If you missed last week's message, you might want to pick that up. And you might want to go back and listen to it again a second time or a third time. And maybe you want to listen to it, then maybe hand it off to, and share it to someone whom uh, you love. And I want to make sure that they are certain that they're placing their faith rightly in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for this morning, we're here at this verse. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. And I want us to look at those two statements in that verse. Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm going to take them in reverse order. And I think it's vital for us to try to, to the best of our ability... Read this in the context of, of the time in which um, uh, it, it was written. Uh, re remember, John's gospel is the last one written. He's a very old man at the time that he writes uh, the, the gospel of John. It's probably somewhere 85 to 90 AD. And by that time, enormous changes have taken place. John, John's brother, dead, uh, James, is dead. Uh, Peter, the leading apostle to the Jews, is dead. Paul, the apostle to the Gentile world, is dead. Uh, Thomas, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, all the apostles are dead except John. There's been a tremendous, uh, a, a terrible war uh, with Rome that broke out in 70 AD. And that brought an end to Jerusalem, uh, to the Jewish capital. It brought the, the, the raising or the burning down of the, the temple. It brought um, with it another long exile for the Jews. Uh, that heralded a new a, a diaspora, a dispensation of dispersion. Uh, so there's no temple, there's no sacrifices, there's no capital city, no homeland, no Caesar, no, no king but Caesar. And, and again, all of the apostles but John are dead, and the Jews are aliens and strangers in the lands. Yet there's still many Jews who reject Jesus. So John's purpose for writing the gospel account is to present not chronological a narrative of, of the life of Christ, 
but he wants to display the deity of Christ. He wants to strengthen the faith of the second generation of believers and then bring more into faith in Christ, bring uh, about faith in others. But he's also writing at the same time to correct doctrinal error because false teaching is beginning to spread uh, here um, in this first century church. So the Christian that was, or the, the Christian church was born some 50 years or so earlier uh, on the Jewish annual feast of Pentecost, and that crowded up a room there in Jerusalem just 10 days after the bodily ascension of Christ, it's under attack. And Paul and Peter and Jude have warned about coming apostasy uh, in the church, about grievous wolves not sparing the flock. So by the time John writes, there's all kinds of heresies that are beginning to spread and grow and that's the way it always is for the church. The first generation of the church perceives the truth, understands the truth, perceives the truth with great conviction and fights for that truth. The second generation of a church comes and settles down into the belief and, and, uh, and enjoys the benefits of the fight and the struggle that was won for them by the previous generation, the first generation of the church. And the truth is the third generation comes about and is somewhat complacent. They didn't have to fight for the truth. They didn't have to maintain a hold on the truth. They just heard the truth. Therefore, in the third generation, the truth becomes somewhat of an opinion. So there's a natural declension in the life of a church, and John understands that. Now, one of the great errors that was going on in the time here concerning the person uh, of Jesus Christ emphasized or one of the great errors concerned the, who he was as the, the son of God, errors concerning his full deity, his full humanity. And contrary to the false doctrine that was taught uh, uh, at the time that Christ or the Christ spirit came upon the human Jesus at his baptism and then left him at his, cru at his crucifixion. And again, that kind of false uh, idea was out there and leading to all kinds of other kinds of false teaching and errors that were flourishing or would soon come to to fruition. So there's a battle for the truth here. So these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. Now, when we say from our perspective, some 2,000 years after the fact of the events that Jesus is the Son of God, we understand and we're saying, look, he's equal with God. He is God's Son. He's the second member of the Trinity, God incarnate, God come into flesh. But again, at the time that John is pinning the gospel of John, this doctrine again has come under great attack. So this is one of the reasons, if you go back and start to think at the beginning of the book, this is one of the reasons why John begins his gospel account not with introducing Jesus at his birth, but he goes back further, he introduces Jesus from the beginning, from before creation. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being, and Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, he's trying to help the reader understand that Jesus is none other than God Himself, the one who's involved in every aspect of the creation, the one who is eternally God. And this one who is eternally God steps into time and he comes and he puts on flesh. Verse 14 of John chapter 1 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the issue that has come under attack when John is writing the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, obviously was also an issue when Jesus was physically walking on the earth. 
And as I've said repeatedly throughout the, the study of the Gospel of John, your response to the question, who do you think Jesus is, the answer that you give is the most important answer that you give to any question in your entire life. Who do you think Jesus is? The answer you give is the most important answer that you'll ever give to any question in your entire life because it has profound effects on how you live your life and time and has profound effects on where you will spend eternity. Now, this was a major issue also at the time, uh, again, that John is writing and that Jesus is walking on the earth. And this issue of who exactly is Jesus was a major issue in John chapter 5. So turn there just kind of quickly here. John chapter 5. Now, you remember John chapter 5, that's when uh, it began with Jesus healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, the man who hadn't walked for 38 years or so. And Jesus comes up to him and says, Arise, take your pellet and walk. And, and immediately the, the man did that. He got well, picked up his pellet, began to walk. Jesus healed him immediately, on the spot, completely. But if you might remember, we went through that portion of Scripture. I told you it's a tremendously sad story. Because there's nothing in the story that indicates the man who got healed ever believed in Jesus. There's nothing that said uh, he ever believed in Jesus. In fact, he didn't even know who healed him. And he never thanked him. It's really a sad story of ingratitude and spiritual blindness that concluded with treachery on the part of the man who was graciously and compassionately healed by Jesus because in essence what that man did, that man did is he turned Jesus into the religious leaders of Israel who were already seeking to kill him. But John includes the story in, in the gospel account to prove beyond a shadow of doubt the deity of Jesus Christ. So the whole point of the story is really not the healing. That's not the response to the healing. The point of the story is to point out Jesus performing the miracle and then Jesus performing the miracle purposefully on the Sabbath to prove that he is God come in the flesh. He is God come in the flesh. He is the Lord over all, Lord over all of creation, as, as John states in chapter 1. He's the Lord over all. He's the Lord over disease. He's the Lord over demons. And he is the Lord over the Sabbath. And he has no interest in Jewish traditions that meant the uh, false leaders have placed upon men, placing him in the bondage uh, concerning the issues of the Sabbath. So again, John includes the story not only to demonstrate the deity of Christ, but to expose the false religious system and the lies of the devil that are so much prevalent at the time in which uh, that John is writing, right? So are, are, we, are you with me? We're, we're 80, 85, there's issues here, there's issues in the context of John 5, there's issues everywhere because the devil is a liar, always. The damning lies of the devil that always trap men into false ideological fortresses. And again, at the time of the miracle, the truth is the religious leaders don't care. The religious leaders don't care. The religious leaders really have no concern for this man who was healed. They don't care about him. They don't care about the fact that he's been healed. They don't care about... The only thing they ever they care about is that Jesus has broken one of their rules by commanding this man to pick up his pallet and walk, his, pick up his, his bedroll and carry it on the Sabbath. That's a violation of their rules, not God's. That's the only thing that they're concerned about. So again, John very intentionally places it in the book to point out the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God come in the flesh. He is God who has become a man. As Jesus often did in his incarnation, uh, he attacked the false religious leaders of Israel because their errors are eternally damning. The errors could cost men their eternal souls. 
such as believing that by following these external rules, obeying these external rules, not picking up your bedroll on the Sabbath, you could earn right standing before God. That's a lie. But most specifically, the greatest error is rejecting Jesus as the Son of God or the Messiah. So again, very clearly, this passage in uh, John 5 shuts the door uh, forever, I think, completely on the nonsense of people who say, well, uh, Jesus never claimed to be God. He only claimed to be the Son of God. In due respect, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't understand. The, the, The question... It, it, or the, the, the answer is you need to read the text. The portion of the scripture declares the fact the Jewish religious leaders understood very clearly what Jesus was saying when he made the claim to be the Son of God. And by making that claim to be the Son of God, he was in fact claiming deity. He was making himself equal with God, and the Jewish religious leaders understood that. Now, we're not going to go into a lot of detail on this, because i got to get to that other phrase, but I just want to draw your attention to it, and I just want to kind of read through it and basically just kind of give you a little bit of the, uh, of the headings, just some things to, to think about here in this John chapter 5 passage. And then we're going to see, in the t- we're going to see by the testimony of Jesus from his own mouth uh, that he is incarnate deity. That's the reality. That's who Jesus is. What does it mean when it says Jesus is the Son of God? This is what it means. He's incarnate deity. He's God come in the flesh. Verse 16 of John 5. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. <laughs> Healing a man who hadn't walked for 38 years. That seems reasonable to me that we would attack that kind of guy who does those kind of things, right? I mean, it's just the, 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 the irrationality of the false religious systems. And Jesus is equal to God. Here's one of the first headings. Jesus is equal to God in his person, but he's distinct. Equal to God in person, but distinct, distinct but equal. Verse 17, he answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now again, again, the Jewish religious leaders understood very clearly Jesus is claiming equality with God. They're not confused over the issue whatsoever. Verse 18, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Because he is. But here comes the testimony of Jesus from his own mouth concerning his deity. Jesus says he's equal to God in his works, what he does. Verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless he sees something of the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So since the Father is always working, he's always governing, always sustaining his universe, his creation. He's holding it all together even on the Sabbath. He's showing mercy even on the Sabbath. Again, Jesus is making claim to full deity, full equality with God. Because as the Son, he can also show mercy exactly as he did on the Sabbath. And he can heal the man at the pool of Bethesda at the Sabbath because he's equal with God in his work. And at the same time, free himself from the charge of blasphemy because Jesus, as the Son of God, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus made the Sabbath for man. There's no restriction, therefore, uh, for him working on that day. Jesus makes the claim to be equal to God in his love. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show them that you may marvel. 
Again, because the Father loves the Son, the Father has shown the Son all things that the Son, uh, that He, the Father is doing, and, and He is eternally, the Father is eternally granted to the Son perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect power, and there's a perfect union of love between the Father and the Son. Jesus is equal to God in His power and in His sovereignty, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. Jesus is equal to God in his judgment. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is equal to God in his honor and his worship. Verse 23, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Again, this is how you test a person's, the validity of a person's profession of faith, that they quote-unquote believe in God. Okay, that's great, you believe in God. What do you think about the person of Jesus Christ? That's the issue. If a person says they believe in God, but they think that Jesus was nothing more than just a good man or some kind of a great philosopher or teacher, then they don't believe in the biblical God. They don't believe in the only God, the only true and the living God. They believe in a false God, a, God, a false God of their own imagination. If they don't honor the Son as full deity, as God incarnate, then they're not honoring the Father. If they don't honor the Son, they're not honoring the Father. 1 John 2, 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and who does not confess the, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So again, those who claim that they're, they're honoring God the Father and refuse to honor the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is equal, that's separate, right, co-equal with the Father, they're deceiving themselves. They have an improper view of the person of Jesus Christ. So again, very clearly, Jesus has repeated uh, the claim that he's God. He's God come in the flesh. And, and, and no one will be okay on the day of judgment that doesn't know that, that doesn't love him and honor him and worship him and adore him for who he really is. He's God of very God. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and doesn't come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So again, John says, look, John 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And believing you might have life in his name. Now, confusion over the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, existed when Jesus was incarnate, right? When he was here on the world walking. And confusion over the person of Jesus Christ uh, existed when the Apostle John is writing this gospel account somewhere between 85 AD, follow me, and confusion over the person of Jesus Christ exists, you're supposed to say today, today, thank you for being awake, right? First service, I know it's rough. Nothing's changed. Because most men are confused over the person of Jesus Christ because they do this with this book. They don't open it. If you open it, confusion is taken away. And again, just believing in Jesus is not enough. And that's the Christian culture that we're a part of collectively in this country. I believe in Jesus. Okay. What exactly do you believe about him? Who do you believe him to be? Because that is of vital, eternal importance in your life. Again, John 5, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 24. He who hears my word and believes him, that would be the Father who sent me, 
has eternal life. It doesn't come under judgment, right? Now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But it's passed out of life unto death. You have to understand who Jesus Christ is. So again, we understand why John writes, Jesus is the Son of God. That's who he is. And he's trying to address the error in the day that Christ was incarnate walking. He's addressing the error in the time that he's writing. He's addressing the error in our day. I mean, you know people in your neighborhood who don't believe that Jesus is incarnate deity. Could be your next door neighbor who's just regular Joe. Or it could be the guy two houses down who's a Mormon. Or two guys two houses down on the other side is a Jehovah's Witness. They have an improper understanding of the person of Jesus. Could be a Roman Catholic who has an improper understanding of the person of Jesus that doesn't come from the Bible. So again, we understand why he writes Jesus is the Son of God. But what, is exactly, what exactly does he mean again in that statement when he says Jesus is the Christ? These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, I personally am not sure we get the full picture here. We get the full idea of the Christ, especially from our perspective 2,000 years later, looking back, and especially from a Gentile viewpoint. Now, amongst the commentators, there's a whole lot of discussion on exactly the audience. Who's the you? These things have been written that you might believe. So who exactly is the you? Some come along and say, well, uh, it's uh, written for you who are already Christians. And I can live with that. And we're trying to encourage and strengthen your faith. That's good. But then there, some people come along and say, well, no, the you is non-Christians. Uh, because the, the gospel account of, uh, of um, <laughs> John is evangelistic. So there's a whole lot of discussion on the issue. Me personally, I, I can live in the and both world. I'm happy with that. And both. The, the purpose of uh, the gospel of John for you is edification. And the pur- pur- purpose of the gospel of John for you is evangelistic. Now, there are linguistic experts who would come along and, and would say that the proper view to take of the statement here in verse 31, based on syntactical grounds, is it really should be rendered like this. These things have been written that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. I like that. These things have been written that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. So in essence, he's answering the question, again, in the context of the day, who's the Messiah? Now, again, from our viewpoint, from a Christian viewpoint, we would say, well, Jesus is the Messiah because I read the, the Gospels and I understand that. That's good. But from an evangelistic time or evangelistic standpoint, the time where John is, is writing and the Gospels continuing to spread, there are many Jews who are not convinced. Many Jews have not yet converted to Judaism. And so I think John is writing so that they, the Jews, may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. He is identifying who Jesus really is, identifying the one, the long-awaited one that the nation had been waiting for, the nation had been looking for. Now, it goes without saying, but I have to say it anyway, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It's a significant title, but again, what exactly does that mean? That Jesus is the Christ, or that the Christ is Jesus. Now, again, John ends the chapter by saying that these things have been written. You might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believe we might have life in his name. So John ties the importance of understanding what it means that Jesus is the Christ to genuine salvation. So it's important to understand what it means where it says Jesus is the Christ in order to have eternal life. Now, we're somewhat familiar with the word, the term Christ or Christos. 
That is the New Testament equivalent, the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament word Messiah. The word Christ is used some 500 times in the New Testament and basically means anointed. Now again, exactly what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the anointed? What does it mean that Jesus, and I'm emphasizing the Christ, that's important. What does it mean that the Messiah is Jesus? Now remember back at the beginning of the gospel, and back in chapter 1, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, comes to him and says in John chapter 1, verse 41, we have found the Messiah, and it's in a translation that says, which is translated means Christ. We have found the Messiah. So again, the Messiah is the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation, prophesied again in the Old Testament. Messiah is derived from a Hebrew word that means again, anointed one. Corresponds again to Christ or Christos in the New Testament. So anytime you encounter the word Christ in the text of the New Testament, you're actually encountering the Messiah. So Jesus Christ could really be properly read. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one. Again, the one who is the long-anticipated, long-looked-for, long-waited deliverer. The one who uh, the nation has a saving expectation uh, when he arrives. Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. The Samaritan woman, think about her in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. I know the Messiah is coming, the Deliverer is coming, the one who is anticipated to come all the way from back at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, for God's people. Uh, Just listen, I thought this was interesting. And uh, when I was just reading through John chapter 7, it's at the the Feast of uh, the Booths or the Tabernacle. And I'm going to read them both in there for you at the same time. John 7, verse 26. Just listen. And look, he was speaking publicly, and they, the rulers, were saying to themselves, the rulers don't really know that this is the Christ in the, most of our translations, but the Messiah, do they? However, they know, where they, they know where this man is from, but from wherever the Christ or the Messiah may come, no, may, no one may know where he's from. Verse 31, many of the multitude believed in him that they were saying when the Christ or the Messiah uh, shall come, we will not perform more signs than the one that this man is, will he? Verse 41, others were saying, this is the Christ, the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ, the Messiah, will not come until Galilee. Is he? The, uh, verse 42 says, not the scripture, has not the scripture said that the Christ or the Messiah comes? He will be the offspring of David from Bethlehem, the village where David was, etc. and so forth. Right? Every time you see the Christ, it's, you should think in your mind the Messiah. That's how the Hebrew mind would receive that. Now, if I remember right, I think it's the 2011 NIV and then the Holman Standard Version in the Gospel accounts, and I think in the book of Acts, translates every time instead of the Christ, the Messiah, because they're trying to emphasize the Messiah. That's vitally important to get a bigger picture of the context. So again, when you come to this concept of the Messiah, the concepts of being anointed, again, that means the Messiah, the anointed one, has been divinely selected. And again, the Hebrew word from which you get Messiah basically means to spread liquid over. That's the verb meant to anoint. Spread liquid oil, liquid over. Usually olive oil is the object that was used either on an object or a person. So anytime in the history of the Jewish nation when olive oil was ceremonially spread on an object or a person, that symbolizes the fact that they were set apart for a special responsibility. They were set apart for spiritual usage. They were, they were consecrated. 
identified as sacred. They were taken out of the secular. The object was taken out of the secular realm and used uh, for God, etc. and so forth. Now in the Old Testament there were three offices, three individuals that were set apart specifically by God that were anointed for a specific duty uh, to represent God. They were the offices of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of the king. And in one sense, they're little M messiahs, anointed, not the big, not, not the big M, but little M messiahs. Again, God and God's anointed ones. Now, obviously, the Old Testament prophet's role was to speak to men on behalf of God, to communicate to people the truth, what God wanted them to know, to, to reveal God's word, God's way to mankind. So when the prophet spoke, he basically spoke well, the words of God. He was speaking on behalf of God. Sometimes the prophet delivered messages that were encouraging and comforting. Sometimes the prophet delivered messages of judgment. Sometimes the prophet delivered uh, predictions of the future. That's the prophet. The priest served, again, primarily as an intercessor between uh, God and man, a mediator between God and man. He office, offered sacrifices to God in order to cleanse uh, of sin. God is holy, man is sinful, there's necessary for a necessity for a mediator, and God has graciously provided that through the priest. Uh, again, to bring people into God's presence, to uh, allow them to worship, to serve. Uh, so the, that's what the priest did. He, he interceded, he stood in the gap, as it were. And then obviously you have the kings. And, and the kings are the ones who ruled on God's behalf, the people, by his authority. Saul, of course, was the first king anointed by uh, uh, the nation of Israel uh, and uh, anointed by God for the deserver of the nation of Israel. And then it was followed by another anointed king who was the person uh, who came out of uh, one of the sons of Jesse. That was a young man named David, 1 Samuel 16. So in the coming of the Messiah, the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah all through the Old Testament, in his life he was going to fulfill these offices, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And John, and really the entirety of the New Testament writers, witness to compel faith in Jesus as that one, as the Messiah, the one who's perfectly and eternally fulfills these three Old Testament pictures, these three Old Testament anointed offices. Because the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to fulfill these three needs that all men have. All men need to know God, all men need to be reconciled to God, and all men need to be ruled by God. That's the office of the prophet, priest, and the king. That is the Messiah. So that's, again, why you go back and you look at the beginning of uh, the, the Gospel of John. John identifies Jesus as the true prophet. He's the one who reveals God to people. John reveals him as what? Remember the term? Jesus is what? the Word. He's the Word. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So again, the eternal Word stepped into time, became a man. Jesus, who came from God, is also God. He came from God, who's also God. He incarnates himself and he's come to do the Father's will and he's come to reveal God's will to man. In fact, it's really interesting, I think, in John chapter 3, that interaction with Nicodemus. Remember, remember the title that was given to Nicodemus? He is the teacher of Israel, right? And the teacher of Israel didn't know that one must be born again. He didn't know that one had to be born from above to inherit eternal life. 
And Jesus starts explaining that to him in that interaction with Jesus. And Nicodemus marvels in verse 9 of that, says, how can these things be? And it's really interesting, I think, what Jesus tells him. He tells him what the entire world needs to know, what it means to be born again. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have, uh, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Better understand who he is. John chapter 4, the interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. She understands that the Messiah is going to come one day who will tell us all things. Who will tell us all things. John 4 verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So again, Jesus is the perfect prophet of God. And his messages were nothing but truth because he only spoke the word of God. John 7, verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. John 8, 28, I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father has taught me. John 12, verse 49, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 12, verse 50, I know that his commandment is eternal life. And, and uh, uh, therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. On the night before he was uh, uh, arrested, uh, he really sums up his prophetic office by telling his disciples, John 14, 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding, me, abiding in me does his work. Meaning he said, look, I've come to the world, I've come to represent God, I've come to represent his, his words, I speak his words, I, I've come to do his work, his ministry. Again, exactly who Jesus is, his compassion, his unfailing love. Again, he's teaching men about the truth about who God is, the word of God. He's offering to men uh, God's offer of reconciliation and peace again through himself. So Jesus is the great prophet, the one waited for, the one men looked forward, uh, looked forward to. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, God, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So Jesus is the one. He's the prophet. The one men need to know in order to truly know what it means to believe and to have genuine saving faith. And not only is Jesus the anointed prophet of God, but of course Jesus as the anointed prophet, uh, as the anointed Messiah, fulfills the office of priest. Jesus is the priest for his people. Now again, the priests of the Old Testament, they were chosen by God, again anointed, they were set apart for service. Deuteronomy 18.5, the Lord your God has chosen you, in the context that would be Levi, and his sons from all your tribe to stand and to serve in the name of the Lord forever. You see the same thing in Numbers chapter 3, verse 3. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priest, uh, whom as uh, ordained uh, uh, to uh, serve, whom he ordained to serve as priest. Again, this is the Arianic priesthood. These are the men that God has chosen and ordained to serve him as Old Testament priests to represent him who brought men before God and God before men who stood in that place as the intercessor <clears throat> and again who offered sacrifices that would atone for sin. <clears throat> but all the Old Testament priests were merely, merely previews of a, 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 a picture of a greater priest who would come. And again, you see that in John's gospel. Uh, you see John the Baptist, he bursts on the scene, and there's a little bit of confusion over who he is. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 20, uh, John confessed and, and did not deny, he confessed and said, I am not the Christ. 
They ask him, verse 25, he said, then, then why are you baptizing? Well, why, if you're not the Christ or Elijah or a prophet? Answer, because Jesus or John the Baptist was actually the forerunner like the Old Testament predicted. Before the Messiah would come, there'd be a forerunner. He would be the one who'd be pointing forward to the long-awaited one, the Messiah. Verse 29, John chapter 1. The next day he saw, this is John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? The sin of the world. Jesus is the perfect priest, the perfect mediator, because he's not only the priest, the mediator, he is the what? The Lamb of God. What does that mean? It means he alone is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who continually intercedes on our behalf always. He's the one who's going to make sure we make it all the way to eternal glory. Remember John chapter 17. And it was as the true priest of God that the Lord Jesus cleansed the temple. He threw out all the wicked religious leaders and rulers and profiteers that were coming into the temple and making it into a den of thieves, uh, attempting to make money off people's need of forgiveness of sin. John chapter 2. When the woman is caught in adultery, remember in John chapter 7, the top of uh, chapter 8, when the woman is caught in adultery, she's brought before judgment, uh, brought for judgment before Jesus. And what does he do? He literally stands in the gap against her condemners, against her condemnation, because he is the true priest of God's mercy and, and God's grace. He drives away her accuser, accusers, he grants her forgiveness of sin. And he sends her away and says, live a holy life. He, he, Jesus, is the anointed, perfect priest of God's mercy. And John calls men to repent and believe. John calls men to repent and believe, confess their need of saving grace, confess their need of, uh, of forgiveness upon the person of Jesus Christ that he grants in his atoning death. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, Five, there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, says, He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he'd made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me tell you, no earthly priest ever sat down in the temple because his work was never finished. But Jesus sat down because Jesus is the perfect and the only sacrifice. Hebrews 9, verse 11, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 26 of, of Hebrews 9, now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin, but he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected all for all time those who are sanctified. That's the priestly work of the person of Jesus Christ. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's also the, the king. Kingly office, again, in the Old Testament, 
Uh, the kingly office is mentioned, in fact, as far back as the earliest times of Abraham where God revealed that kings were going to come through his line. The kingly line eventually um, uh, uh, narrowed down to Judah, to his descendants in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be obedience of the peoples. The prediction is narrowed down even further in Numbers 24, verse 17, concerning the one who's coming in the future. It says, a star shall come forth from, Ju from Jacob, the, the scepter shall rise from Israel. And then there's a major step forward in the Revelation given in 2 Samuel 7, uh, 12 through uh, 16 to David that his house will be perpetual. His house will be perpetual, be perpetuated by the coming of the Messiah. And then on his throne and in his kingdom, uh, this uh, Messiah will sit forever. See the same thing in Psalm chapter 2. That's why I read it this morning. When the, the Lord declares that he's going to set the Messiah, his son, on, on the throne in Zion. Uh, uh, Psalm 2 verse 6, as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, thou art my son today, begotten thing. You go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, the Messiah is described there, 23 verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall rise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in, in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this will be the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness, right? Jehovah Tzidkenu. The Lord our righteousness. You go to the book of Isaiah and it's getting narrower and narrower. Isaiah chapter 9, the identity of the Messiah, the one who's going to come and sit as a king becomes even clearer. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace or on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Turn the page. Get to the New Testament. becomes even clearer about the coming child, who's the king, who is the Messiah, the one who has all power and all authority. In the New Testament, when the angel appears to Mary and announces the birth of her son, who is Jesus, the Messiah. Luke 1, verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Go to chapter 2 of the book of Matthew. The Messiah is identified by the Magi from the east who have arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And they saw the star in the east. We've come to worship him. And Jesus accepts that uh, title, that, that title as the king. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Jesus speaks, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fold of burden, or a beast of burden. Are we getting the identity of this person? And again, we too far often think of him, especially at Christmas time, as some baby in a manger. That's who he was to come into the world, but we turn to the end of the book, the book of the Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 11, John describes him. This is the picture you should have in your mind's eye. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. 
And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That phrase, the kingdom of God, appears 66 times in the New American Standard Bible, most of them in the synoptic uh, Gospels, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is what? At hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus taught us to pray Matthew 6. Pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Next phrase, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can't have a kingdom without a king, can you? Jesus is the king. Again, likewise, John bears testimony of that fact, the, the royal office of Jesus as king over his people. But you know what? Jesus wasn't the kind of king people wanted. Jesus wasn't the kind of king people were expecting, they were looking for. They were looking for some kind of military conqueror. Again, they thought they found him when he entered in Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday when they hailed him, John chapter 12, verse 12. The great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus finding a young colt sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. It's interesting that God in his sovereignty, uh, even over all men, especially even wicked men, the wicked ruler Pontius Pilate, when Jesus was crucified, he has this placard inscribed and placed upon him, Jesus of Nazareth, what? The King of the Jews. John 19, 19. So again, there's no question, no mistaking the fact that Jesus is the King of Israel. He's the one the Old Testament anticipated would come, the Messiah, the King of Israel. He did not come the first time as a military conqueror to put down Israel's enemies, especially the Romans. But instead, this king is going to gather his kingdom by being lifted up on the throne of his cross, by dying as the perfect substitute, and casting down all spiritual pressures and establishing his reign of grace over the earth as he defeats sin and death and the devil. When the risen Lord was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them all things. Here it is, concerning himself in the scripture. During the trial of Jesus before the high priest, Matthew chapter 26, the high priest asked him, verse 63 of Matthew 26, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said, verse 64, you have said it yourself. 
Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand with power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus is not just a Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Son of God. He is the prophet, the priest, the king, the long-awaited, long-anticipated one, the perfect mediator uh, between God and man, uh, the one who mediates as the king, the one who rules uh, over God's creation and over this earth. He's the one who mediates as the priest, reconciling God and man together, the one who's the prophet who reveals uh, man's, uh, the, the, what man needs to know about God and God's means of, uh, of saving grace. He comes and he proclaims the truth of the person of God. And again, he brings men to God. It's our sin that separated us from God. And again, when man fell in rebellion, he lost the knowledge of God. When man fell in rebellion, he, he came under a different authority, the little g God of this world. But, but Christ, when he comes into the world, he overturns all that as the prophet, priest, and king the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, Emmanuel, God with us, the one with all power, all authority, the one every man desperately needs to know and have an accurate understanding of who he is, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. Again, the one God promised to send all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3 that would come and crush the serpent's head, the one who had overturned the effects of sin, the one who would deliver God's people, who would consummate salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. The one who has promised to return again one day on this earth. And when he comes, he will put down all opposition. He'll set up his kingdom. He'll rule on this earth, and then he'll rule eternally. But sadly, John chapter 1, verse 11 says, he came to his own, and those who were his own, what? didn't receive him. What an utter tragedy. The one whom they'd been waiting for, the one whom they'd anticipated, the one they had longed for for centuries, they rejected him. They rejected him then and most men still do today. Came the first time with an offer of peace to make atonement for sin. Comes back the second time as the conquering judge. And he will remove all ungodliness. The question is, have you submitted yourself to the saving rule of this person, Jesus Christ? Have you, have you received him as sovereign ruler, prophetic revealer, and God's all sin-atoning priest? If you have not, you're in a lot of trouble. If you have, then you have gained the right to eternal life. Because that's what John says, John 20, verse 31. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this look at this one verse and that is like much of your word, it's just packed with so much for us to stop and consider. And we have considered that. What does it mean to be the Son, for Christ to be the Son, and for Christ to be the Messiah? We stand amazed at your goodness, your mercy, your grace, and we just pray for clarity of understanding that we would have a true knowledge. And all who hear this word proclaimed this morning would have a true, clear knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ, because he alone is our hope. He alone is our help. And we thank you for you and your kindness revealing your son to us and speaking clearly through your word.
Honor yourself through the proclamation of the word. This morning I pray in Christ's name, amen.